The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. The penguin keeper of the San Francisco Zoo said that she had never seen anything like like it before, what was happening at the penguin exhibit. She said she, she didn't have words for it. She said the best way she could describe it was like tuxedos in a spin cycle. She said that she described her penguins that she cared for. They had 46 penguins, and they were happy. They would lay in the sun mostly, occasionally take a dip in the water and just be just wait to be hand-fed their fish for the day. They were happy, healthy, fat, lazy penguins. And all of that changed when six new penguins arrived from the SeaWorld in Ohio. It was December 24th. Six new penguins. Here's the penguin exhibit in San Francisco. Six new penguins arrived. And they weren't like the other penguins. They immediately waddled out, saw the water, and they all jumped in the water, and they just started swimming and swimming and swimming, doing barrel rolls under the water, getting out of the water, back in the water, swimming around. And what happened next took everyone by surprise. The other 46 penguins watched these six penguins, and they all started jumping in the water. And before long, all 52 penguins are furiously swimming in the water all morning, all day. They finally exhaustedly get back out of the water, go to sleep that night, get back in the water the next day. And for weeks and weeks on end, all of the penguins are just swimming, swimming, swimming furiously. And the people in the San Francisco area kept coming to the penguin exhibit to see this new energy all the penguins got in that penguin exhibit. It was all because of a few new penguins that set a new tone at the penguin exhibit. Now there's this leadership author and writer speaker, his name is uh, Michael Hyatt. And he talks about this phenomenon at the San Francisco penguin uh, exhibit at their zoo. And he talks about it and he says, you know, there's an interesting parallel between what happened in that moment in the animal kingdom and what happens among humans. He says, we underestimate the influence on culture just a few can make. So here's what we're we're talking about in this series. Each one of us have been placed in a different sphere. You've been placed in a family sphere, immediate and extended. There's a neighborhood that you're in, apartment complex. You've been placed in a school system. You've been placed in a a branch or a department or an organization or a company. You've been placed in in a place that you work. There's a neighborhood. There's all different ways, social groups. You're in all of these different spheres And what we believe is that we've each been placed there intentionally by God. And if you are a Christ follower, we're going to talk more about this, you are called not just to be in that sphere, but to influence it. To to be the new penguin in that sphere. 
to walk into a sphere that might be dead and bring life. That's what your calling is. And here's the incredible thing. It doesn't matter where you're at in that sphere. You might be at work. You might be the brand new intern or the new hire or one of the executives, C-level executives, it, or anywhere in between, supervisor, manager, boss, anywhere in between. It doesn't ma matter. You're called to be an influencer. You might be the new person in the social group or you might be the ringleader. It doesn't matter. You might be in your school, you might be the new freshman or the person who's just started or the upperclassman, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life, you might feel like you have a lot of influence or a little influence. You might be a stay-at-home mom, a single dad, you might be working multiple jobs, it doesn't matter. You are called to be an influencer in your sphere. And we believe we're called to influence self-order. That is our calling mandated by God, that we've been given this faith, this spiritual life that's not supposed to remain private, but it's supposed to be wrung out in that sphere, bleed out, and start influencing that sphere. So we're going to take the next eight weeks, we're looking at a part of the Bible that breaks out specifically what it looks like, the attribute, truths, and principles of what it looks like to be a world changer, to take that sphere that you're in, no matter what it is, and turn it upside down. Because God didn't make an accident placing you where you're at. Not in the future, not in a, not in a few days, today. Not when you're done with your school, not when you get to that position you want to be in, not when, not when you finally get into the career path you want. Right now has been intentionally done by God. You are to influence today. We're going to talk over the next several weeks of what that looks like. We're looking in a part of the Bible called Thessalonians. Thessalonians. It sounds like a mouthful, but I want you to get very familiar with the book of Thessalonians. So let's say Thessalonians together. Ready? Thessalonians. You guys sound like pros. You, got, you already got this, okay? Well, there's two books called Thessalonians. We're going to be in what's called First Thessalonians. It's a letter from a guy named Paul to a church in a city called Thessalonica. So it's written to the Thessalonians. That's why it's called that. And we're going to read this passage in it where he breaks down these principles of how to be an influencer. You could call them leadership principles. You could call them how to be a catalyst in your context. We're going to look through these over the next eight weeks. Um, so if you would open, we're, we're going to look primarily at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, but today we are going to be in chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Here's what he says. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, who's the we he's talking about? We is Paul, Silas, his partner. He's sometimes called Silvanus. That's the same guy, Silas and Silvanus. Paul and Silas, and then the guy that they're mentoring named Timothy. That's who the we is. They're writing to the Thessalonians. Now, these guys spent, these three men, spent a few weeks in Thessalonica, and we actually know 
what happened over the, that course of three weeks because it was written about and recorded in another book of the Bible called the book of Acts, chapter 17. It's recorded what happened the three or four weeks that those three men were there in Thessalonica. The first thing we learn is what he said there. He said, we came, we shared the gospel with you, and he says, and we know it took root because it came in power. Now let's just, before you go any further, let's define our terms. You've heard the word gospel before. The word gospel technically means good news. Paul, Silas, and Timothy have given their lives to this good news. So what in the world is the good news and why is it worth them giving their entire lives to it? Here's the good news. It starts with this truth. Every single human that has ever lived around the globe, every single human has a broken, severed relationship with the one who made him or her, the creator, the one true God, has a broken relationship. Why? Because the creator of the universe has the ways in which he is expecting and calling us to, to live. He has his commands. And every time we break one of those commands, the Bible calls, uses the word sin, Whenever we break that command, whether it's lying, lusting, cheating, selfishness, whatever that is, whenever we break one of God's commands, it's essentially we're breaking the command of the one who rules and owns everything, the creator. So we are living in rebellion against that creator. But here's the good news. He loves us so much that he came to earth personally as a man, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect, sinless life that we couldn't live, surrendered his life to be crucified on a cross, and dies on the cross, and he says, that death will count as a substitute sacrifice for you. It will count as payment for your sins, past, present, and future. It will cover all of your sins, washing you free. And if you just accept that, you will live in permanent forgiveness from God so you can have a relationship with God again. Amen. On the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead, defeating death itself so that if you put your faith in Jesus, death isn't the end. Death is defeated for you and you spend eternity in heaven. That's the gospel. That's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy give their lives to. They come to Thessalonica. They share that, and it's, it takes root. It shows up powerfully. I mean, people are struck by it. In fact, you might be here, and you might have walked in here today, and you might have be like, look, I'm not sure if I believe that, but even hearing those words, something stirring inside of me, that's the same power that Paul is talking about that happened in Thessalonica. That's the same power that's still at work today, and that may be how you need to respond today. You may be sensing God drawing you to himself. Paul, Silas, and Timothy share this message of the gospel. It takes root and power, and over the course of a couple weeks, more and more people are accepting what Jesus did on the cross. They're following after Jesus, surrendering their life to him, becoming Christ followers. But it doesn't stay like that for long because there's some people that get upset, jealous at this new spiritual movement and they come looking for Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and they come knocking on the, on the door of a guy whose name is Jason. Jason had welcomed Paul, Silas, and Timothy into his house and was protecting them. And I don't want you to turn there, but I just want to read to you what happened in Acts 17. 
This is what happened. I'm just going to read two verses to you. It says, this is the account of what happened. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, now you've got to see what they say. This is how they accuse Now, they want to accuse Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They get this mob. They're beating down the door of Jason's house, trying to find Paul and his companions. They want to drag them out. They can't find him. They get Jason, bring him before the city authorities, and then this is their accusation against Paul, Silas, and Timothy. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Isn't that just about the best possible description of what God has called his people to do? They meant that as an accusation, and it was just an affirmation, wasn't it? They're kind of like, oh, thank you. That's exactly what we're trying to do. Perfect. They refer to them as these men who have turned the world upside down. Great, we're fulfilling Jesus' mission. That's what he told us to go do. Turn the world upside down. Now, now here's the interesting logic. From, remember, it's a wicked mob. The wicked mob sees it as turning the world upside down, but they know they're just turning it right side up. They're called to turn the world upside down, to, to transform it. One of the best descriptions of a Christian you could come across. They call them these men, and and I want you to notice, then that's what happens, and that gives you context for what Paul says in that verse. He says, you saw what kind of men we proved to be. In other words, it's not just that you saw what we said, what we taught. It's not just that you saw how we presented, how we fronted, you saw when, when, when things got squeezed, when things got tight, you saw what kind of men we proved to be is what is saying here. You, you saw who we really are. Now let's just stop for a second. Um, knowing the people that know who you really are are pretty few and far between, isn't it? There's a lot of people that know about us, a lot of people that see how you know, we present ourselves, but there are not many people who know how, who we truly, really are, right? It's a couple friends. If you're married, maybe your spouse. Uh, there's only a few people that know who you really are. And so I, I was joking um, about this with Rebecca. And um, there, there was a quote that we were, we were joking about. And, um, you know, some people know if, if you have a, a friend who works on staff at a church, or you know a pastor, working on staff, and any one of our staff could tell you, any of the other pastors could tell you, there are challenges when, when it's working on staff at the church. I think it's the greatest possible calling anyone could have, but there's some challenges with it, and it's similar to some other industries. When you're working at a church, you work with the best people when they're at their best and when they're at their worst. If you're a counselor or in law enforcement or medical field or a couple of those other industries that are similar, you see people at their best and at their worst. And when people are at their worst, man, people can be really difficult to to deal with. And so we came across this quote, and it was this old-time pastor, and he said, "Um, really, being a pastor might be hard, but what's even harder is being a pastor's wife. 
And he said, this is why a pastor's wife has to deal with all the same difficult people the pastor has to deal with, but she also has to deal with the pastor, okay? There's something that all of us pastors and all the staff here would say, our spouses really, really know us. So a little while ago, um, Rebecca and I were walking through the mall, and the, the mission was she was going to help me pick out a new pair of pants, okay? That, that sounds simple, right? That's not a hard thing. And um, so we were walking through, and, and if you're like me and you rely heavily on your wife to pick out your clothes, this is a humiliating experience. We arrive at the store. She hands me a stack of pants. I walk into the dressing room. She's like, go on. And I feel like I'm eight, okay? <laughs> Put on a pair of pants, and I just walk out, shoulders slumped. She's analyzing things. Okay, turn around, Okay. And each pair of pants I come out, she's like, ah, it's all right. Yeah, I kind of like those. I'm not sure. And then finally I come out with this pair of pants on. And this time she goes, oh, definitely not those pants. Those are awful. Okay, like I, those are terrible. Just definitely not those. And I looked at her and I looked down. And I said, these are the pants I wore to the mall. <laughs> the ones I already own. I said, wait, let me see if I get this straight. You've been walking alongside of me this whole time, and I'm in these pants, okay? Like, been walking next to a monster, okay? Like, there's moments in life where you realize how much the people who really know you have to put up with you, okay? There's not a lot of people that really know your strengths and your weaknesses, but Paul is saying something that's interesting, and this is essential to get his point through the rest of this passage. He's saying, you all, you saw us when it got, when there's pressure, there's persecution, there's affliction. You saw us. So he says, you really know us. You know us. That's vital to understand what he's going to say next. Here's how this passage plays out. We're going to look at the next two verses, but the rest of this series we're going to spend in the next chapter. And what he does in the next chapter is he then describes, you saw how we were among you, and then he's going to list it explicitly. This is, we acted like this, and this, and this, and this. This is how we lived among you. And at the end, he's going to see, say, so you remember that. You, you, you know, you are our witnesses. That is how we lived. He, he's telling them how they operated, but he knows that they've already witnessed it. He's only taking what they've seen and made it explicit. He's not leaving it implicit, okay? This is the logic of this passage, but he starts with this concept where he says, you saw us for who we really are. When we we're wrung out, you saw what we are. When we we're, when we're refined in the fire, you saw our true colors. Okay, I, I want you to see what he says next because this is absolutely vital to understanding. We, we can't go any further till we, till we see this. This is verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. I want you to look at what he says there. I want you to look at that word imitators. That's a key word here. He says, here's what happened. You saw that when we were afflicted and persecuted, we stayed true. 
you saw that, then you did that. He says, and actually, you're also then imitating the Lord because that's what the Lord did. And then he says, and then that's what the region around you started to do. You've then become, Thessalonians, an example of how to live. So I want you to see this chain. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are imitating Jesus. The Thessalonians are imitating Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And then the whole region starts imitating the Thessalonians. Do you see that roll out in those verses? But I want you to key on this word imitators because this is an important word that Paul uses in, in multiple different places in his letters to other churches and other regions of the world. And he uses this idea of imitators and he uses this so much that we should take note of what's this concept that he keeps repeating. It's not uncommon for Paul to tell a group that he's leading or ministering to where he says, be an imitator of me. Now that makes me uncomfortable. In fact, look at how he says it in 1 Corinthians 11.1. This is what he says. This is to the church in Corinth. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I'm going to shoot you straight. This has bothered me about Paul for a long time. Because I kind of feel like a better way that Paul should have put it is don't be an imitator of me. I'm a broken person. Be an imitator of Christ. But who am I to question the scripture that's breathed out by God? God has worked through Paul to write this truth. So let's press into it. And the more that I've pressed into it, I realize Paul is only exposing and displaying an unavoidable truth about leadership and influence. You can't escape this factor. The group that you're influencing, if you're influencing that group, whether you're influencing up, influencing down, or influencing sideways, however you're influencing, if you're being an influence, that means that they are just imitating you. That's a law of how human interaction and leadership and influence works. The people you're pouring into, whether we like it or not, are, if you're influencing them, they're starting to imitate who you really are. This is why it was so important when Paul looks at him and he says, you know who we prove to be, you've imitated it now. Who you really are is what influences people and what people imitate. Okay, I want to get this down to a really tight sentence that we can remember. Okay, go ahead and bring that phrase up on the screen. This is how I want you to remember it. You can teach what you know, but you replicate who you are. That's in your notes. Take a second, circle it, star it, rewrite it. This truth, you can teach what you know. There are things you know. There are things you've learned. There's things you've been indoctrinated by. There's trainings you've gone to. There are things you know, and you can teach that. But in the end, what will unavoidably happen, what you will actually replicate or reproduce is who you really are. Okay, I want you to remember this. So I want us all to say this out loud. Say this with me. You can teach what you know, but you replicate who you are. I want to talk about what this looks like in all of our spheres, but let me just give you one initial illustration to show you how this works. At some point, if you have children, or maybe you can think back to, to when your children were this age, your children turned 15 years old. And at that point, to your horror, 
they get a restricted driver's license, which means they are behind the wheel of a weapon called a vehicle. And you have the unfortunate responsibility of strapping in next to them in the driver's seat, and you're buckling your seatbelt, and for the first time, that's not seemed safe enough. And you're sitting there, and as they're driving, you're giving them driving lessons. You're teaching them, you're having little lectures here and there, and as you're driving, you notice that they are driving uncomfortably close to the car in front of you. And so you do what anyone else does in that situation, you put on the imaginary brake. There's no brake there but you're pressing the brake, okay? You almost put a hole in the floorboard. And you're saying, you can't, that's too close, okay? And you're trying to, to calm yourself down because usually it's the crazy neurotic parent that's coaching the child, okay? Now they're stressing out on the road. You know, you can't fall that, that, took that closely and then you come up to a stoplight and then they come zooming up and screech on the brakes behind you. You can't, that's too close, okay? And you give them a lecture and if you have a good driver on your hands, you give them the lecture once, a reminder a couple times. If you don't, it's a couple dozen times. And you have this lecture about following too closely. But let me remind you of what you're up against. For 15 years, they've been sitting in the back seat and looking out the front windshield. And you've been training them unbeknownst to you for 15 years of what a normal following distance looks like and how fast you come up on people at stoplights, okay? So you have a couple moments where you train them, but you've had millions of moments that you've been training them all along and that looks normal to them, okay? This is what this means. You can teach what you know, but you replicate who you are. In any sphere, you're replicating what is on the inside. Okay, I want to walk through how this looks in every one of our spheres because if you want to be a leader, an influencer, this is a truth that we've got to embrace, own, harness, so we can be the best possible catalysts. I want you to see how this truth plays out, and then we're going to talk about, okay, what does then that mean for our life? Let's first talk about this first sphere. Let's stay in this first sphere of family. Because if you're a parent, or you're going to be a parent one day, or you have been a parent and now you're a grandparent, or wherever you're at on that, parenting is the, it's leadership, isn't it? It's leadership. In fact, it's the most potent leadership you will ever have. No one will be as immersed in your leadership as your children. And so you can teach them what you know, but who you are is being wrung out, bleeding out, and it's creating a culture that your children are immersed in. You can teach what you know, that's instruction, but who you are is immersion, and in that leadership called parenting or even grandparenting, that leadership with those children, they're immersed in who you are. You are creating a little you, and that's terrifying. <laughs> You're creating a little you, whether you like it or not, because you all have heard the phrase, do as I say, not 
and we all know that that's worthless, right? That's hypocrisy. You can say whatever you want. You can teach what you know, but I'm going to do and become who you are. So you can pull them aside when they're older and have a good lecture on integrity, and um, that's fine as long as you're bringing to the surface explicitly what they've been witnessing all of their life implicitly. You might now be giving them a word and a terminology and, and you might be informing their mind how to think of what they've witnessed, but if they haven't witnessed it, don't expect them to have it. Humility. You might talk about humility. You might send them to church to learn some of these truths and values like humility. But if they're not immersed in it, you're replicating who you are. Men, you can pull your sons aside and have them have a lecture about how to treat women. That's good. But it's not going to trump the millions of encounters they've witnessed of how you have treated women. Ladies, you can pull your daughters aside and you can instruct them about body, having a healthy body image and where you find your value and modesty and you can have all of those instructions and that's great as long as that's what they've been immersed in with your life, as long as that's who you really are flowing out because here is how leadership works and in no other environment more than parenting. It's caught more than taught. Teach them but teach them, the, bring to light what they have caught along the way. You can teach what you know, but you're replicating who you are. That's just a law of influence in human dynamics. Let's take this in, into your uh, work sphere. Let's say you're like, okay, you know what I, I need to do? I, I feel like I'm supposed to start a new company. I want to franchise a restaurant. I would like to start a new Chick-fil-A which I'm planting that seed because we always need more Chick-fil-A's, okay? I was expecting a hallelujah out there, but I didn't really get that. Okay, anyway, so let's say you want a, a new Chick-fil-A, and so you, you want to open the franchise, and, and you go to corporate, and they tell you the values, and, and the Chick-fil-A value is, you know, you go the extra mile with customers, and so you come, you, you get all the things ready, you open the franchise, and you have your shift, you know, and you're like, okay, I probably should have, like, have a speech or something. I'm not good at this, but you're like, hey, guys, we are going to go the extra mile. I put a plaque in the kitchen. I gave you little pins to put on your shirts. Go the extra mile. That's what we're going to do. Okay, that's great. You can teach that. But if that's not who you are, don't expect that to be the personality of the group that you lead. Let me walk you through how this works. Because the first time you walk by a piece of straw paper on the ground and you don't pick it up, you just taught all of the people who are looking to, for you to lead and influence them, oh, that must not mean, be what it means to go the extra mile. Because the first time a customer comes to you with an, unrealis uh, uh, an unrealistic uh, request, well, I ordered this, but it's not what I want. Yeah, man, but you've eaten three quarters of it. Well, I want a new one anyway. And, and they go, the, the cashier says, what do we do? And if you say, well, it's not my fault, kick them out. If you're not displaying and teaching, because it's not instinctual in you, that value of going the extra mile, don't expect it to play out like that in, in your group. If you, the values that you might want to teach, 
Maybe you're a business owner and you created the values. Maybe you're a, an executive and you've been entrusted to teach them. Maybe you're a branch manager or a supervisor or a boss or have a department or a team and you're supposed to perpetuate these values and these truths. Don't expect that group that you're responsible for to embody that if that's not in you. Here's, let me make it even more explicit. If it's not in you, you won't instinctually catch it and celebrate it in your team because you don't know what it is. You won't instinctually capture it and hold someone accountable to it and correct it if it's not in you. You can teach what you know, but you will replicate who you are. If there's values you want to replicate, you better first and foremost make sure they're inside of you. But let's take another step. There, there's some good news in this. This principle, here's, the, here's maybe the best news of this principle. It doesn't matter what position in the group you are, you can influence. You say, look, I, that's great for one day when I'm a, a supervisor or manager, but I'm the new intern that just started. Okay, like I might not be here in two months. But you know who you are? You're the new penguin. You're the new penguin. Here's how this works. You show up and you show up in a company like, man, I mean, there's just not urgency and there, there's just, there, there, people are kind of just, just kind of going along and they're just kind of plateaued, but you have urgency and you have work ethic and you've got hustle and you're hungry and all of a sudden there's this new intern that's not trying to make anyone look bad, but they're hustling and they're working hard. Then all of a sudden the people that are one level above you, they're like, oh no, who's this guy? And now they're hustling and working hard because they're a little nervous. And then their bosses are like, whoa, what do you think you guys are doing? Now they're hustling. And then their bosses are hustling. And you may have just influenced upward an entire culture of hustle. Or how about this? You're a new teacher. And you just started at a new school uh, this fall. And you find yourself in the teacher's lounge. But it could be any break room or lounge in a hospital, in a doctor's office, could be anywhere. You're the new teacher in there. And what happens in the break room? Gossip starts. And what's the thing about gossip? Gossip's contagious, isn't it? Because if you gossip to me, then I know you can gossip about me. So I've got to enter into a little gossip war and make sure I've got the upper hand. And so you can enter in and you can perpetuate a culture of gossip. Or you might be that new person that says, hey, can we just not do this? I'm not, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but I just, I don't want to be a part of this because I, I don't want anyone to be gossiping about me. It's, that's their own business. Let's not do this. And what if you changed an entire culture of gossip in that school because you decided to be the, inf the influencer there? And who you really are, you let bleed out. It doesn't matter what place you're at in your work sphere, you're called to be an influencer and that's just a matter of letting who you are out to replicate, the replicate and be imitated by the people around you. Let me talk about one more sphere. Let's say you serve or lead here at your church. Let's say you lead a serving team or, or a group, a community group. Don't expect your team or your group to take on anything or any value that you don't personally have. Okay, let me give you an example. Let's say that you are in charge of the chair setting up team. And you, you come in and you set up the chairs. Okay, if you don't have a vision for why what you're doing is vitally important to furthering the kingdom of God, your team won't. 
But if you, as you're setting up these chairs, you start to say, you know what? The church gathering together is an ancient thing that's been powerfully transforming lives since the beginning of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so when the church gathers together, man, powerful things happen. And you're setting up these chairs and you say, man, I can't believe it. Miracles happen right in these chairs that I'm touching. So you say, I I can't help but pray over these chairs and every person who sits in these chairs because life change is going to happen right here. People are going to get healed in their marriages. People are going to find Jesus Christ and their eternity is going to be changed right here in this chair. People are going to be set on fire to go out in the world and be an influencer. It's going to happen right in these chairs and I get to set these up and pray over them. And you know what? I give my best at home and I give my best at work, but this is God's house. So these chairs are going to be the straightest anyone has ever seen these chairs before, okay? I'm getting out a laser light level and making sure these chairs are perfect because when I come into the into God's sphere, I'm going to give my absolute best. If that's your heart, that'll be your team's heart. If that's your heart, you have a vision and you understand, you have a passion and a heart and you're, as you're a community group leader, that will be your, that'll be the heart of your group. If you understand the vitality of what you've been called to do, man, let that replicate in the people around you. Who you are is what you're going to reproduce. So what, is then, what do we do with that? that, that that's just a fact. So what do we do with that? Who you are is what you replicate. So make sure who you are really is worth replicating. You've all had this, maybe you've had this experience. Uh, It caught me one time when I really thought about it. I was on an airplane and they were explaining the oxygen masks and they drop down, they, well, they tell you they're going to drop down. If they actually drop down, I'd be screaming my head off. But they, they tell you that they may drop down. And then they say, if there's someone that needs assistance next to you, there's something you should do first. What is it? You put your own mask on first. I remember the first time I, I, I really heard that, I was like, you know what? Actually, if they don't say that over and over and over again, I probably would not do that. I'd be like, oh, let me help this person. And then I would suffocate before they got their mask on. And neither of us would have our masks on. Here's the truth. It's not what you say. It's who you are. So if you're unhealthy, spiritually, emotionally, if what's inside of you is unhealthy, That's what you're going to replicate. And here's the danger we fall into, whether it's family, work, or church. We put health on the back burner for the sake of productivity. And here's what will happen. You'll be more productive. You'll produce more. You'll produce more unhealthy things. Which would you rather do? Produce a lot of unhealthy things or produce fewer healthy things? You, church, you cannot afford, if you're going to be an influencer, when you understand this truth, to put your spiritual and emotional health on the back burner. You know, the Bible, when it talks about the kind of leaders that the church should look for, okay, this is breathed out from God who leads the universe, knows a thing or two about how humans function. Most, they list attributes and pretty much all of them are about character. 
because you reproduce who you are. So if you're going to lead, whether it's in your home, in your place of work, your friend group, or in your church, first and foremost, be devoted to making sure you're spiritually healthy. And, and I think you know how to do that. What's in your private prayer life and time studying the Bible? Some of the most important things about who you are. Giving yourself to developing your soul, being a part of your church, being in community at your church, growing in your faith. Don't ever put that on the back burner for the sake of productivity. Be devoted to being, having a healthy soul because people are immersed in the culture you're bleeding out and you're reproducing who you are inside. Now, one last encouragement for you about this principle. The, we've been using this example of a penguin. Some of you are new penguins jumping into this context. But uh, Jesus uses a different example. He uses the example of salt. It's um, been kind of a, a dad's weekend at, at home, and um, I uh, took the kids out, my two kids out to, out to dinner, just me and the kids this weekend, which naturally means we got pizza, okay, of course. So we go and get pizza, and we're sitting there, and my four-year-old daughter, she says, she asked me if I can hand her the salt. Now, um, my daughter, if she, if I let her salt her food, you probably know what that would look like. It would be one spot and a little white pile, okay? And so I have to take the salt shaker and explain to her and show her how to salt a piece of food. You know, you, you sprinkle it evenly all over the dish, okay? You guys know how to do this, right? This is not new information for anybody, okay? You sprinkle it evenly so that it can pull out the flavors of the entire dish. Here's how Jesus describes you and me. He says, you're salt of the earth. I've sprinkled you. He's saying, church, I've sprinkled you. I've scattered little granules all throughout this community, all throughout Miami and Fort Lauderdale. I've sprinkled you out. I've sprinkled you in all different types of positions throughout the organization. I've got some of you as interns just where I want you and some as supervisors and some middle management and some C-level executives. I've got you all exactly where I want you because I've sprinkled you throughout. I've sprinkled you in, in neighborhoods and in industries, the medical industry and the education industry and entertainment industry and, and all different industries all throughout. And I've, I've sprinkled you in, in families and in extended families and in social groups. I've sprinkled you all out there so you can be right there in that spot drawing out all that is beautiful of this community, drawing out all the things that I am calling, God says, calling this community to be. No matter where you are at, we can't go a step further until you know you have been intentionally placed where you're at by God to have an influence and an impact today. You're called to be a world changer. Let's go turn this world upside down together. I want to remind you where these the verses start. I want to just close with this. First two verses that we read were this. He says, brothers and sisters, love by God, you've been chosen. Do you realize, I want you to think back, if you're here, here's the fuel for why we go out and live a life for God. He loves you so much. He's called you out of where you were. And he's called you out for an incredible mission. He loves you so much, he sacrificed himself for you. He loves you that deeply. 
I don't know how you walked in here today, but can I just encourage you? You can surrender your life to Jesus today. Today's the day. You can say, Jesus, you died for my sins. You paid the price. I surrender my life to you. I know that you died to pay for my sins and forgiven me, and and just take my life, use it. Maybe for the first time you can surrender your life. I want to give you a moment to do that now. Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Can we just take a quiet moment between us and God? And if, if that's you, I want to ask you to do a bold thing. No one's looking around. Everyone's heads are bowed. But if you're here and you're saying, look, I'm, I'm drawing a line in the sand. Today is the day I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to walk out of here knowing that I'm saved for eternity. And you say, today is my day. Then I want to lead you in a prayer. But first, just in a step of boldness, Can you just slip up your hand and put it back down? Praise God, I see it. Thank you. You say, today's the day. I'm drawing a line in the sand. I want to surrender my life. Would you just slip your hand in the air and put it back down? Praise God. If that's you, I want to lead you in this simple prayer. Just quietly in your heart, give your life to Jesus. Just simply say in your heart to him, Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for providing an eternity for me. And thank you for calling me such an incredible mission. I surrender my life to you. Please use me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.